0: Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter and verse 21 through 30. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, Will he kill himself? Is that why he says, Where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hey, good morning, friends. Hey, uh, my name is Matthew. I serve as a pastor here at Christ City and one of the elders um, I have a. Just an announcement or some things to share with you before we jump into the, into the message here. Uh, I want to tell you about um, a, an aspect of ministry that uh, we're going to uh, be walking towards in 2019. And it's a, um, it's a trip uh, to Israel and Palestine. Um, we are going to be uh, joining with Churches for Middle East Peace uh, and March uh, 14th through 23rd of 2019. And what we're going to do is um, we're going to take a trip that's very similar to a trip we took two years ago with the Telos group, where uh, it's one part spiritual pilgrimage of, of walking in the places uh, where Jesus walked and uh, uh, really standing in, in, at the Sea of Galilee to walking uh, the path that Jesus walked up to Golgotha, to um, be in Jesus' birthplace, to, to immerse ourselves in uh, the, the, the places of the Bible and let, uh, let the scriptures come alive to us. So it's going to be one part spiritual pilgrimage, but the other part is going to be history and understanding and learning, particularly about the, um, uh, the conflict between Israel and Palestine and understand the oppression that the Palestinian people uh, live under. And so as we're there, we're going to meet with Palestinian Christians, we're going to meet with Jewish leaders, we'll meet with Muslim leaders, and just try and get a sense of what it means to to live in a place that's so deeply divided. One of the things that we want to seek to do is to to visit chiefly with peacemakers, those that sit at the table of people that have long been at odds with them for generations, and to to understand the ways that they are charting a course forward and making for peace. And so if this is at all interesting to you or you want to learn more, I just wanted you to know that over the next several weeks that more information will be coming out about this trip. Um, In a couple of weeks, we'll have Community Lunch and Sarah Burback, who will be leading this trip. Um, She'll be there uh, at Community Lunch. You can all just sort of get your plates, sit around the table with her and ask her any questions you have about the trip. She'll be able to share all of the details about the cost, about uh, a skeleton itinerary, about our team meetings, all of that. If If you're not here on the 11th, Uh, On that Sunday, then there'll be other information uh, meetings that will follow, one on the 18th as well. Um, And just would love for all of you to begin praying and thinking through uh, uh, your participation in this trip. Now, having said that, I want to say something else about this. Last night, um, I was uh, at a meeting with um, different folks from Churches for Middle East Peace, including um, uh, Reverend Dr. May Cannon, who is the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace, and also Samuel Wadd. Now, um, Sammy is a just a long he's a he's a saint, really. He has been at the table. He's a Palestinian Christian who has been working for peace for decades, all of his life, really. His uh, work towards peace has led him to start the um, Holy Land Trust, which will be one of the sites that we'll visit on our trip to Israel and Palestine. Um, he has been committed to bringing together those from Israeli and Palestinian and Christian and Jewish and Muslim backgrounds and forging a way forward that esteems the human dignity of everybody. Um, this work has cost Sammy a lot. It's cost him his family members who have died. It cost him reputation. It has cost him his own human rights. And when he walked into my house, I could tell that he was a man that had uh, just a strength of spirit and a gentleness about him. And uh, he has remained committed to following Jesus and the ways of nonviolent resistance in a place that's riddled with violence and hatred and division and conflict. And um, before uh, Sammy walked into the room, there were others from uh, along with others from churches from Middle East Peace. I, I like many of you. Learned of the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where 11 people lost their lives to an armed gunman who embraced anti-Semitic views and uh, drunk deeply uh, from the well of white supremacy. And this, this comes after news of racially motivated shootings in Kentucky Pipe bombs being sent to the homes of former presidents and newsrooms around the country. And as Sammy and I talked about his work in Bethlehem, these events are swirling in my mind. And one of the things that Sammy said to me was really, I wasn't quite sure how to make of it, but one of the things that he said to me, he says, he said, Watson, hopelessness can be a sign of hope, actually. Because it means that we've we've released our grip on the thing that we were hanging our hopes on. And it gives us the opportunity to cling to that that is truly hope. Just as I was sensing my own in creeping of hopelessness and disillusionment and despair. God sent a Palestinian Christian into my house last night. One who can trace his faith lineage back to shepherds who were watching their flocks by night. A man who lives behind an apartheid wall in the birthplace of our Savior. God sent me a messenger to tell me that even hopelessness is a sign of hope. And So even in the aftermath of tragedies this week, we are a people who cling to the one who clings to us, and we're able to renew ourselves and recommit ourselves to the work of that kingdom. So I want to pray, and uh, pray not just that you'll join us on the trip, it's going to be a great trip, you should come, but also that we would recommit ourselves to the work of peacemaking, that is so desperately needed, even if we find ourselves in that place of desperation. So let me pray for us and we'll jump into our text. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reminders that that we serve and are subject to and are rescued by and are esteemed by the Prince of Peace. It can be foolish to even say that word sometimes, but God, we cling to it because we cling to you. And Lord, even as we're in this space and in these uh, moments where it can feel quite so dark, God, we know that you are the light that shines in the darkness, that you're the one that came and that the darkness doesn't overcome us. And So, Lord, we, we look to you again. We come to you in this space again to be reminded of your promises The contrary to evidence that swirls around us, us, fills our Twitter feeds and news channels, God, that you're still on your throne and that we with you still have work to do. So, God, we pray that you would comfort those whose lives have been lost this week to the violence it's all around us, God. I pray that we would commit ourselves again to the work of peacemaking. That we'd speak honestly and truthfully about the systems and structures that lay claim to oppression. That we would woo those that seek to do violence into the kingdom of peace with truth, with gospel, with strength. And with the same invitational living that you lived, Jesus. I look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, friends, for that. Um, if you're interested, connection cards, Israel trip. I'll follow up with you. Um. <laughs> All right. So one of my, I think I've mentioned this before. One of my all-time favorite movies is, uh, is Princess Bride. Anybody? You guys, 1987. Yeah, you guys know this movie. Perfect, brilliant. Um, it's a 1987 Rob Reiner film. You guys know it. Already know it. It's a movie that follows uh, the William Goldman uh, novel by the same name. Uh, so, audience participation. Just for a minute, raise your hand if you've if you've seen this movie. You know this movie. Yeah, some of you. Perfect. Excellent. This is uh, where those of you who haven't seen it feel really out of place. But we love you. We're really <laughs> glad that you're here. Uh, it's on Netflix or someplace, you could probably see it. So, uh, audience participation, uh, just shout out, what is your favorite line from that movie? Just, as you wish. <laughs> good, I got a match, what was it? As you wish. Inconceivable, as you wish. Anybody want a peanut? That's it, I like it. Go <laughs> That's good, anybody, favorite lines? I do not think it means what you think it means, good, yeah, excellent, anybody else? Yes, classic. It's a great movie. My kids love this movie, which is a which is a tremendous feat because uh, the movie's over 30 years old, which is remarkable for me to think about. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the film, it's a it's really it's a humorous um, story about a damsel in distress and princesses rescued uh, from a cruel and conniving prince Humperdink. Um, and the heroes is a just a marvelous cast of characters. You have a, a pirate, you have a Spanish swordsman, and Andre the Giant. Um, <laughs> and At the end of the movie, the heroes rescue the princess, and the princess and the pirate, they go off to live happily ever after. The Spanish swordsman uh, becomes a pirate, and Andre the Giant goes on to become a world-renowned wrestler. Um <laughs> I don't. I don't know what actually happens to Andre's character at the end of the movie, but uh, but the, one of the plot lines of the story is that of Enigo Montoya. Um, it, he's the swordsman, um, and the the backstory is kind of a tragic one of his life. It's uh, his father has been killed by one of Humperdinck's henchmen years ago when Enigo was a boy, and uh, and that anger at his dad's death, like it, and his lust for vengeance, it just sort of has driven him for years, and uh, a burning passion that. Uh, he has in his gut to uh, avenge his father's death and to kill his father's killer and to kill him in a duel. And so throughout the, the, uh, the movie, he says this line, My name is Enigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And you know, he's, he's like, thinking through This is what I'm going to say when I see this guy. And I'm going to pull out the sword. And I've learned how to sword fight in all these different ways. And at the end of the film, that actually happens. That Anigo he wins the duel. He vanquishes his father's killer, the six-fingered man. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, He rescues the princess. He saves the day and the end of the story. Now, the actor that plays Inigo Montoya is Mandy Patakin. Now, Patakin, he's a celebrated actor. He's on the stage and the screen, a great singer. Um, you may know him as Saul Berenson from Homeland, if you've, anybody Homeland? Yeah, maybe, two people, perfect. Uh, <laughs> Patakin, uh, he's, he's, a, he's a, what I love about him, he's sort of in different, whenever I see him in interviews, it's always interesting, or even when I see him like on Late Night, Jimmy Kimmel or somewhere, he's kind of an actor's philosopher. He always thinks deeply about his characters and how they've shaped, and he thinks about them even over time, about sort of reflecting back on characters that he played when he was a younger man. He's always really thoughtful about it. So I found a clip that I want to show you. And, it, and it's not of, of the movie clip, so sorry. But, but um, it's another clip. Uh, it's, it's of Patakin and he's talking about his character in The Princess Bride, a character that was driven by love uh, for his father and his purpose for revenge. And in the clip, what you're going to see is Patakin is reflecting now, 30 years after the film's making, and what sense he's making as, as now sort of a 30 years older man um, uh, of Enigo's journey and what he hopes for himself and for the world in light of it. So take a look.
2: Well, there are two lines from The Princess Bride that I love. The one that everyone is for, very familiar with is, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father to die. That's the popular one. But I heard another line from the movie about five, six years ago. I was in the gym working out, running through my lines, my songs for a concert. The the TV was on, the movie was on the TV, but the sound was off because I was running my stuff. And I went up to my hotel room to have my dinner before I went to the theater. My wife was there and she had the movie on. It was at the end of the movie, right? When Buttercup falls out the window into Andre's arms, and Robin falls into Andre's arms, the man in Black Carrie is sitting there asking me to be the Dread Pirate Roberts, and and that 30-year-old Mandy and the 55, 58-year-old Mandy's watching this, watching the 30-some-year-old Mandy say a line that I said, it's in the movie, but I didn't really hear it as that young man, and for me it's the most potent line in the whole film. And that line is, I have been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I do not know what to do with the rest of my life. And I love that line, and I love it for all of us, because the purpose of revenge, in my personal opinion, is completely worthless and pointless. And, and the purpose of existence is to embrace our fellow human being, not be revengeful, and um, turn our darkness into light. And so that's the line I love from the movie. I was thinking about
1: this interview and what um, Patakin says there because of, because of what we'll encounter in John 8 this week. Um, in the movie, Inigo is, is driven by his identity as a son, and he's also driven by his purpose of revenge. Those two things, of, uh, uh, they, they become quite powerful motivators, uh, identity and purpose. They, uh, they're intertwined motivators, actually, in, in many respects. They can hinge on each other. They can synergize each other. The, the identities that we have, either those that were placed on us or those that we embrace, they can be so shaping in how we view our purpose in the world and our purposes for the world. Uh, yesterday, Christ City was partnering with Rosedale uh, Community Center, including our ANC Commissioner, Miss Sandra Gilbert. I was thinking about her with this, too. Miss Sandra is a friend of our church and a leader in our community. She spoke during our Spiritual History of D.C. uh, seminar that we uh, held earlier this year in the spring. And one of the things that she talks about that she shared with us is about her mother. Her mother was a civil rights leader in the state of Nevada in the 60s and in the 70s. And Ms. Sandra shared how seeing her mother march and lead and advocate for the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor, how that shaped her growing up. It's, it's what led her to attend Howard University and to root herself here in D.C. It's what led her to invest in Rosedale and work to get the Rosedale Rec Center opened in 2012. And it's what continues to motivate her today. You can look at Miss Sandra's life and you can see the ways that her identity and her purpose are wed. Her identity is the daughter of a civil rights leader and her purpose to work for a more just and peaceful and faithful world. There's a connection between these two things. What I want to to highlight in John 8 is the way that Jesus continues to articulate his purpose and his identity to the Pharisees and to us. And this is exactly what continues to enrage Jesus' accusers. They hate who he says that he is and what he claims to be doing. They simply will not believe either claim, the claim of his identity, nor the claim uh, that he makes as to his purpose in the world. And so they desperately want to deny those claims and silence those claims. The passage that we're looking at this morning, it's in verses 12 through 30. And verse 12 it begins, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says that he, all by himself, on his own, is the light of the world. That's who his identity is. That's who, who he is. He states straightway who he is. This becomes part of the scandal uh, to the Pharisees and the central hope of those who believe in him. And I think it will probably be helpful for us to remember where Jesus is actually speaking these words. I know it's been a few weeks, but three weeks ago, uh, I mentioned that Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem for one of the three festivals that take place throughout the year. The festival that Jesus is at at this point that he's participating in is a feast uh, called the Festival of the Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths, as it's sometimes called. There's uh, three main Jewish pilgrimage festivals that Jews in the first century participated in. These were pilgrimage festivals. Pilgrimage festivals which meant that they uh, the Jews in the region would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate these things um, uh, there was the Passover feast or the Passover festival which celebrated their their exodus their leading out of Egypt where they were enslaved Another festival was the festival of Pentecost where they celebrated the giving of the Torah the giving of the Bible or of the law and then this one the f- feast or festival of the tabernacles was their celebration of their wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land when God fed them with manna from heaven and he led them by a pillar of fire. And so this is what they were gathering to celebrate. One of the main purposes of the feast of tabernacles was for the Jewish people to remember that God is the one who provides and that God is the one who leads, that he takes care of them in the midst of their deliverance. And so Jesus is at this festival. This festival is eight days long. And on the eighth day, Jesus is there. He just sort of, you know, parties, celebrates, eats, feasts, you know, whatever's going on there. He's just there. But then on the last day, on the eighth day, he stands up and he begins to teach. He begins to teach in one of the temple courts. And begins to teach those that are gathered there. And if you'll remember from the sermon a few weeks ago, it's on this eighth day that the confrontations begin to take place. It's this confrontational back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. One of the last things that Jesus says in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 7 from a few weeks ago, on that last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. On this eighth day, this last day, Jesus says, he's the living water. He makes an I am statement. This is who I am. I am the living water. And the connection between this statement and the festival was found in the geography of Jesus' statement, namely the proximity to the pool of Siloam. Now, again, I know we've covered this, but just to refresh, recap, you know, previous episodes, as seen previously on Christ City Church, um, During the first seven days of the tabernacle, priests would collect water from the Pool of Siloam and they would carry it to the altar and they would pour it around the altar and they would rush back and forth, back and forth over the course of these seven days. And the aim of this process was to remind them that God is the one who provides. So that's why they did this. The people would gather around the priests, watch them shuttle this water back and forth and they would sing psalms and hymns uh, as the priests would walk back and forth. The intention of this practice was to remind people that God was the one who saves. God was the one who would rescued them from Egypt and provided for them in the wilderness as they made their way to the promised land. And then it was on this eighth day they didn't shuttle the water. It was on this last day that they stopped carrying water back and forth. And it was on this last day of the festival that Jesus stands and says, I'm the living water. You don't have to keep shuttling this back and forth. You can come to me and then you'll never lack water. What Jesus was saying was that he's the one who satisfies. He was the one who provides. The message to those who were listening, to the Pharisees and those gathered at the celebration, those who made their pilgrimage from wherever it is that they came from, they understood that Jesus was saying that he's the one who saves. He's the one who rescues. That he and the God who led them through the wilderness as they made their way to the promised land, that they're the same. Jesus is echoing actually what he told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. There we found a woman who was coming to a well in Samaria, not in Jerusalem, but in the middle of the day to draw water. And there she goes up to the well and she finds a thirsty Jesus. And then at that point, a conversation ensues. And we come to John 4, 13, where Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's this connection that Jesus is making for those that are farther, that are outside of Jerusalem, that are on the edges, that are on the margins. He's saying, I am the living water to those that are in the middle in the seats of power. He's saying, guess what? I'm the living water. You come to me. I'm the one that rescues. I'm the one that saves you. At the well and now in Samaria and now at the well in Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, let anyone who's thirsty come to me. Because he's the one who will satisfy the longings of their heart and the aches of their soul. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues now and he says, not only am I the source of living water, but I'm also the light of the world and the light that gives life. And it becomes helpful to understand for us again, to understand the context of the festival of the tabernacles. So let me tell you this. On the evening of the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a ceremony called the illumination of the temple. And it took place in the court of women. Um, And this is uh, one of the courts in the collection of courts that the Bible just refers to typically as the temple courts. There were several of them. And in the center of the temple courts, there were four giant candelabras. Now, when I say candelabras, don't think like sort of small, skinny, kind of wiry candelabra that you might see like at Christmas time. These were massive candelabras. They weren't small. Sort of, they they were giant bowls. Uh, with oil and uh, fabric for wicks. Now, side note about the wicks, I'll just um, uh, mention that the fabric used for the wicks, according to one reference that I found, was from the used underwear of priests. Now, I couldn't find any reason for why they used this fabric, uh, nor could I find a secondary source to corroborate this commentator's mention of it, so I decided not to include it in my sermon. (laughs) Now, these massive fires, they were lit. Um, and when they were lit, they, the, the, um, the temple uh, in Jerusalem, it's made out of limestone and so on. And the fires were lit. The light would glisten off of the limestone and it would illuminate the entire city. It was said that the candles, that once they were lit, they sent such a blaze of light throughout the entire city of Jerusalem that every courtyard, every inner courtyard, Of every home was lit up with its brilliance. And the aim of the ceremony was to draw the people to remember when God led them through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. It was the light that led them through the hardships on their journey. They looked to the light of God. And then all night long while these fires burned and these giant candelabras until the, until the rooster crowed the next morning, the greatest and wisest holy men in Israel, men of piety and good deeds, they danced in the streets and they carried tor- torches and they sung hymns and psalms of joy and praise while the people watched and celebrated, remembering that God led them through hard places by the light of who he was. In other words, to begin the festival of tabernacles. On the very first night, with everyone finally arriving into Jerusalem, great lights were lit, lights to illuminate the whole city to remind people that their God was great, that Yahweh was the one who rescues and who leads. And on that night in celebration, people danced and they sang all by the light of those fires. And in the aftermath of that ceremony, now on the last day of the festival, Jesus is saying, You've seen the blaze of the temple illuminations, piercing the darkness of the night of this place, a city under siege by oppressors and foreign occupiers. But here's what I want you to know. I am the light of the world, not just Jerusalem. And for the one who follows me, there will always be light, not only for one exciting night, but for all of the pathways of your life. And the light in the temple, it's a brilliant light, but in the end, it flickers and dies. Jesus is saying, I'm the light that lasts forever. There are, of course, lights that light up our lives for a little while, are there not? Meaningful careers, meaningful pursuits, ways that we're gifted and talented and opportunities that we have to deploy those gifts for things that matter, and it's right for our lives to be lit by the glow of those things and to celebrate them. Other lights could be meaningful relationships, relationships that we have with our parents, meaningful relationships that we have with our children or with a spouse or a partner or a lifelong friend or a sibling. These people, they they bring us joy and they bring us hope and they bring love into our lives, and rightfully so. Creativity and art and beauty Those things bring so much light into our lives. Words of the poets, images from the sculptor, harmonies of the songwriter, they they speak and they make things shine and they illumine our souls. As writer and artist Ken Geyer notes, God gave us art and music and sculpture and drama and literature. He gave them as footpaths to lead us out of our hiding places and as signposts to lead us along in our search for what was lost. In many ways, these are all lights that are intended to point us to the truest light, the work that we do, the relationships that we have, the creativity we see. It is all beautiful and light by which we can dance, but unless it is given over to the one who is the greatest light, the truest light, the light of the world and of our worlds, then any of these lesser lights, they will fade and they will disappoint us because we make them into something they weren't intended to be. Jesus is saying to those gathered in Jerusalem and to us, I am the light that will not fade, and I'm the light that leads to life. From this jumping off statement of identity, I'm the light of the world, Jesus, uh, there's a series of back and forth conversations that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And the content of the back and forth can be summed up in the deep theological question who's your daddy? Um, I meant to grab it this morning. We have a teddy bear at home that we made at Build-A-Bear. And every time you press the hand, you hear my voice say, who's your daddy? <laughs> and you hear Nathan's voice say, you. <laughs> we just sit around and press it. Who's your daddy? You. That's what the Pharisees <laughs> are asking Jesus. Man, I wish I had that bear right now. (laughs) They keep asking Jesus about his authority and who sent him and uh, whose message is he delivering to them? Where does he come from? And each and every time, what Jesus does is he says to them that the Father in heaven is the one who sent me, that he's my Father, and if you knew him, then you would know me, and if you know me, then you know him as well. In 8, verse 16, he says this, but I, but if I do judge, meaning if I were to judge the ways that you do, my decisions are true. Because I'm not alone, I stand with the Father who sent me. Verse 18, I'm the one who testifies for myself, my other witness, because you couldn't testify without a witness, my other witness is the Father who sent me. Verse 19, then they asked him, Who's your father? Jesus says, quite sarcastically, You do not know me or my father. He's saying this to Pharisees, who are the ones who are supposed to say, we know who God is. But they're asking his son, who's your father? And he's saying, oh, you don't know him? If you knew me, you would also know my father. Verse 26, I have much to say in judgment of you, he says to the Pharisees. But he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, my father, I will tell the world. At every turn, Jesus identifies himself, not on his own, but in terms of his relationship to God not apart from his connection to God, but in his obedience to and sentness from God. Jesus makes it clear that he's under the care and under under the authorization of his heavenly father. Jesus is uh, positioning himself in this conversation as the messenger of God who is carrying within himself the words and message and directions from God. Now, this is important because uh, of who he's speaking to. According to Jewish law, an agent must, must act Accurately represent his sender. And to the extent that the messenger did so, was backed by his sender's full authorization. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. I'm my father's messenger. The words I say to you are his. My actions are his actions and his actions are mine. If you want to know God, then know me. And this back and forth conversation culminates and clarifies in verses 27 through 29 of chapter 8. They, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus finally says, I I can just imagine exasperated." he finally says to the Pharisees that, um, that that you will eventually understand what I'm saying to you. You will understand what I mean. When I say that I and my Father are one, you'll understand what I mean when I say that I'm the living water. You'll understand what I mean when I say that I am the light of the world and in me there's found life. You'll understand it all, uh, but you probably won't understand it until I'm lifted up. There's two points where Jesus is lifted up. The first is on the cross. The road to healing was going to go through Jesus on the cross when he took on the shame and the sin and the brokenness and all that was and ever will be wrong in the world. Jesus' ability to give us that which satisfies our thirst and lights our paths, it was secured by Christ on the cross when all that would break us and all that would dissatisfy us and weigh us and kill us, Jesus took that on and into his body on the cross. Jesus was lifted up on a Roman instrument of death. The second point where he was, where he was lifted up was in the resurrection. Jesus' defeat of sin and of death. When he overcame all that was intended to steal and kill and destroy, they met their match in the risen Christ. Through all of this, all that Jesus said about himself, living water, light of the world, messenger of God, son of God, all that he said at this festival for the Pharisees, it led them into rage. Because he was saying, I'm he. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. They said, no, it can't come this way. And it led those religious leaders into rage. But there were others for whom Jesus' words led them into hope. In verse 30, even as he spoke, even as he said all of this, even as he said, you don't have to carry the water anymore, come to me, I'm the living water. Even as he said, I'm the light of the world, I am the light that leads to life. Even as he said, I am the one that God sent to rescue you. Even as he said all of this, many believed in him. Friends, we don't have to walk in darkness. Even when the days are dark, and I can't tell you that they are anything other than that today. These are dark days, but even in the dark, there has appeared a great light. And it won't always be this way. One day who in his coming, in his death, and in his defeat of death has brought freedom and now calls us to embody this light-giving message in the places of our lives and the world that seem bent on brokenness and evil. And Jesus is the one that those first hearers of this message believed. And friends, he is the one that we now, can place our belief, that we can look to he is the one who brings light and life into a world desperately needing it and into our lives which thirst for it. It has been and continues to be my hope for all of us. That's John's hope for writing. Is That we would hear that Jesus is the living water that he is the light of life and that we would like the crowds hear those words, and they would be as a balm to our souls and a shot to our courage to step into a world carrying the message of living water and the light of life. Let me pray for us. Lord, in this, in this, in this festival, there's a cautionary tale as well. There's a, there are those whose, whose hearts were so hardened. And, and the truth of it is, Lord, I, there's sympathy I have for the Pharisees. I felt as though they've been living in darkness for so long that they had seen Rome conquer so much of their lives and control so much of their lives, Lord, that, that they reacted in ways that, um, that sought to enslave others in the ways that they'd been enslaved, sought to oppress others in the ways that they'd been oppressed, God. and God, as you began to move and as you began to work and as you began to woo humanity towards yourself and the person of, and work of Jesus, God, there, there was resistance because it didn't come and the strength and the power that we had imagined. So your messenger and the message was rejected. God, there were others. Who had lived in the same place and lived under the same oppression and the same political dynamics and the same economic dynamics, but they but they heard words that resonated in their souls. And they believed. God, I pray that we would that we would follow their example. Where, wherever it is that we are, and whatever degree of hardness of heart or whatever degree of resistance or uncertainty or skepticism that we may have about Jesus being the one in whom life rests, God, I pray that you would melt it by the tenderness of your spirit, that you would woo us towards yourself, that you would meet us in our disappointments, that you would meet us in our disillusionments, that you would meet us in, that you'd meet us in wherever we are, whatever land we're in, God, and woo us towards yourself. Amen. There's an epilogue to the story that I want to mention real quickly. And, and as I walk through this, it may actually just be for one person in this room. Just before Jesus says that he's the light of the world and, um, and makes this claim, there's an interaction that takes place between the Pharisees and themselves. And it's an interaction between the Pharisees and one of their own, a man that we first met in John 3, his name is Nicodemus. Some of the Pharisees, they're trying to, they're trying to figure out how they can actually immediately con- um, arrest Jesus and immediately condemn him. And then, and then Nicodemus actually speaks up. This is Nicodemus, the one that met Jesus in chapter 3 at, at nighttime. Verse 48, if any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him, no. But this mob, this crowd that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own, one of the the Pharisees, he asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. You see, Nicodemus kind of tenderly pushing back against the crowd, against those that he'd called friends and brothers. When we first encounter Nicodemus, he's quite skeptical, but he's curious. And yet here it seems that he's taken a step or two in faith and exploration. He's on a journey here. He's not quite ready to throw his total support and belief behind Jesus, but he's taking a few steps. And those tentative steps, still with doubt and uncertainty, those tentative steps, they're chronicled in John's Gospel. And that encourages me. So if you're on a journey of exploring faith, what I want to say to you is, well done. I see you. I see the steps that you're taking. And God sees you. What I want to say is, is to keep going. At whatever pace you need. But keep going. Testing, questioning, wondering. And know that with the Lord you have time. But don't stop. And just continue to listen to Jesus. Follow in the footsteps of our four brother Nicodemus. Continue to press and to question and wonder and see where God will lead you.